You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Welcome, welcome everyone to the Future of Asia podcast series. Today's topic is progress towards gender equality in jeopardy due to COVID-19. The context of this is that we know that gender equality and economic development go hand in hand. We know that we've made some progress on this topic over the last few years, but we know that we still have a significant underrepresentation of women globally in the workforce. Now, the question is, is the progress that we've seen, is it in jeopardy because of COVID-19? Today, I am delighted to say that the table has been turned. I get to interview three journalists this time around. So the table is turned. It uh, makes me a little bit nervous, to be honest, but I am delighted to be joined by three distinguished journalists. We have Stefania Palma. She is the FT Singapore correspondent. We have Katrina Nicholas, who is the investment editor from Bloomberg. And we are also joined by Shaili Chopra, who is the founder of SheThePeople.tv. And rather than me introducing them, I would love if you could introduce yourself just for a minute to the audience, please. Let's, uh, let's start with Stefania. Hello, everyone. Uh, as mentioned, my name is Stefania Palma. I'm based in Singapore for the uh, Financial Times. Uh, but in addition to the city state, I also cover uh, Malaysia and uh, Indonesia. Uh, I've moved uh, to Singapore a couple of years ago. Uh, but before that, both academically and in terms of uh, work experience, my focus has always been on Asia, particularly uh, on China. Thank you. Katrina. Hello, everyone. Yes, I'm Katrina Nicholas, and I'm based here in Singapore with Bloomberg. I've been in the region about 12 years now. I've lived in Singapore. I've lived in Hong Kong. I've also lived in Beijing. At the moment, I am heading up coverage for Bloomberg in Asia of investing and real estate, so anything sovereign wealth funds, family offices, hedge funds, and property. I, but I've worn many hats at Bloomberg in my time. I was on the investing, sorry, the opinion team for a while and also uh, headed up the credit coverage team. Perfect. Thank you, Katrina. Shaili. Thank you. I'm Shaili Chopra. I've spent 20 years as a broadcast journalist on India's top television channels. But very soon I recognized the need for a channel dedicated to women. So I founded SheThePeople.tv. Uh, that's India's first platform dedicated to women, a fierce, feminist and fearless space for women to come and share their views and opinions and also present themselves as a constituency that goes beyond one as a tab on many other websites. We carry the universe of women, their interests and all their opinions are on our sleeve on SheThePeople.tv. Wonderful. And, and, and Shaili, what are some of the topics that you would typically have on she the People TV? So the platform prides itself for being one that's focused on women's needs that are non-vanity. Uh, we believe that uh, women have views on issues, whether they are gender, whether they're sexuality, whether they're men, whether it's business, journalism, media, and many of these. 
uh, part of the crossroad of these subjects really comes uh, down to looking at issues that women face. And uh, by issues, I don't necessarily just mean gender equality. It's a platform to celebrate women and what they do. So a female mathematician is going to be celebrated here for her math, not just because she's a woman or talking about gender per se. So yes, we celebrate uh, all of these uh, aspects of women and we raise our voice very vociferously when it comes to women's issues. Thank you all for that introduction. Let's dig in. The first question is, how is COVID-19 going to affect gender equality? Is it going to slow down progress? Who wants to start with that question? Uh, Katrina, do you want to kick us off? Well, I mean, I think if I'm looking at it from a media point of view, I'm not sure it's going to set the the wheel back that much. I mean, if, if I think of my time in journalism, you know, one of the one of the things that I can remember when I started out, which was over 20 years ago now, showing my kind of age, was I was quite often the only female journalist in the room and quite often the youngest journalist in the room as well. And, you know, that was something that was uh, quite confronting, but it was something I got very used to. And that's something that now, I don't think that ever happens. I think now I would almost say that there are more females around a, a table at a me media briefing than men these days. I think um, I don't have the statistics, but there are certainly more women I, I sense coming through journalism school and communication school. Certainly when I graduated, it was very popular with female students. So I think we've seen a big shift over the last two decades. And I, I know just, you know, from if I look around the newsroom here uh, at Bloomberg in Singapore, we've got about 80 journalists and editors. You know, I'd hazard a guess it's pretty uh, well split both on diversity in terms of gender and also race. So will COVID set that back? In the sphere that I operate in, I don't necessarily think so, but I am worried when you read the broader statistics, you know, the, the sort of data that McKinsey produces, because you do see the job losses disproportionately affecting jobs in healthcare, more transient sectors, uh, cleaning, you know, childcare, for example. And these are industries that are typically populated with women. And when they lose their jobs and a recession hits, often they might not have the savings to fall back on that a, a male who's been earning more might. And so I, I worry that once we're through this pandemic, there's going to be an awful lot of economic pain that I think will last for many, many years to come. And that's where I think we do risk slipping when it comes to gender equality. Thank you. Shaili, what's your view? So um, like Katrina here, uh, I believe um, media per se as a sector doesn't have an issue in terms of the numbers. But I think at least in India, I'd like to speak for India, there is definitely an issue in terms of leadership. This seems to be a universal problem when it comes to women taking claim to higher positions in organizations. So I think that's one point so far as media goes. But I feel that, you know, uh, I look at media as an agency of change. I feel we failed ourselves there in covering women's issues. So to give you an example, a survey that was done about two years ago on coverage in Indian media, out of every 1,000 articles written, 800 were spent on Bollywood, cricket and the government. The balance 200 were left for any other issue that included rape to a woman-led, uh, you know, non-fiction book, for example. You can imagine the sort of wide variety of coverage left in that 200 pieces out of a thousand. 
it just goes to tell us that we have an issue in the way we are reporting women we're not giving it enough coverage it's not new you probably already know this that india made global headlines for a rape case in 2012 you know there's possibly a case like that happening here every 6 months and we're not making those global headlines enough we're not even making national headlines enough so i think there is definitely a huge gap in the way media has approached covering this and it won't even just be in the case of let's say issues that are like assault or rape just take this issues when it comes to you know celebrating women in leadership or looking at uh, how women are breaking barriers the few that have been able to do that i think we have um, a reason to be apologetic for not having gone out there uh, and put enough leaders in you know across fields like female cricketers you know i mean australia has led the entire piece by bringing equality of fee for its uh, female and male cricketers in india our women are still jostling to get enough newspaper presence so i feel that there is a lot of um, gap still in terms of how women are perceived as leaders in any form unfortunately the word leader is so you know defined by the black suit and tie that every time i use it i feel the need to explain it better but that's really where we are today and um, again let's give you another example of stories that you all are in asia very familiar with you know india is very prone to farmer suicides uh, you know farmers die by suicide here because of heavy debt in rural india the stories that put out, that are out there are how many people really died what we forget to report are the people they leave behind large families yeah wives who are forced to uh, resort to prostitution children who have to be sold because families have no money we never remember to cover them so the short point i'm making is that we are looking at stories in a very skewed way when we go out there to report some of these issues and this is also the debate that must happen now with covid so deeply entrenched thank you uh, shaili so stefania if you if you look across the region And again, same same question. What's your view on the effect of COVID nineteen on gender equality? And let's let's step, you know, outside of media in the broader uh, context. I think, broadly speaking, what the pandemic risks doing is essentially exacerbating some very unbalanced systems and ecosystems that are all were already in place. in ordinary times uh, and oftentimes uh, sort of biased more towards uh, men so if we look at the the world of work for women uh, for instance sort of stepping back a little bit uh, there was an analysis by Oxfam saying that actually if women earned minimum wage for the unpaid work they do around the house and caring for relatives they would have actually earned something like 11 trillion dollars in 2019 so if we're starting from that base and then adding on the fact that as katrina mentioned this is really a crisis that impacts a lot of female workers because the sectors uh, obviously that have a lot of women employed in them and that are in trouble are hospitality services uh, also for instance some analysts point to public relations in addition to that a huge number of nurses about 8 out of 10 if i'm not mistaken um are actually women uh, so obviously these are the frontline workers that are most at risk so adding all of this difficulty on top of a situation where women were already taking on a lot of the burden in terms of work at home that remains unpaid that 
really runs the risk of creating a more imbalanced system stacked up uh, potentially against women. And the problem is that already in ordinary times, the domestic unpaid labor was already pushing uh, potentially women out of work or forcing them uh, you know, to go part time, taking pay cuts potentially even stunting their career paths. And the big risk is that this pandemic will essentially potentially push women out of the labor force further and therefore increasingly eroding their own financial security. Um, but in addition to work, I think another point that is definitely worth exploring is uh, healthcare uh, for women. Uh, and if we look at uh, the region specifically, uh, obviously, whenever a pandemic hits, uh, you know, healthcare efforts are obviously rerouted towards the disease. So uh, everything sort of goes towards the outbreak, uh, understandably. Uh, but that also means that things like childbirth mortality or uh, maternal mortality or contraception access, for example, those things start sort of falling off the radar. Uh, and in Places like Indonesia, for instance, where maternal mortality rates is one of the highest uh, in the region, that could be extremely problematic. Women already in more rural areas in uh, the country, which uh, I'd like to uh, also remind our listeners is the fourth biggest by uh, size of population. It's uh, split up in tens of thousands of islands. Uh, those women already in ordinary times find it very, very hard to access clinics, for example. So Obviously, if you have a global pandemic that hits, uh, their access to healthcare obviously will be jeopardized. Thank you. And I just wanted to concur, you know, the research that we in McKinsey have, have seen and done on this, uh, we, we, we saw that in the last few years in Asia, the gender parity index that we measure across 30 different parameters actually improved marginally. And I would stress really marginally, right? A percentage point, which is not a lot. However, what we've seen recently is that women are 1.8 times, almost two times as likely to lose the jobs. We also see it at a disproportionate amount of the unpaid care in homes, uh, especially now during COVID, is, is, is done by women. So I, I must say, I concur, you know, there is a reason to be worried uh, that, you know, unless address this moves back in the wrong direction. And the opportunity here is very significant, right? We know that the economic opportunity for increased inclusion globally is order of magnitude $30 trillion in GDP by 2030. Can I ask you, what are some of the differences that you see across Asia? Because I know that, you know, you, you all have different vantage points, but I know that you are looking at different countries across the region. Actually, I just wanted to just pick up on something that um, Shaley said earlier and just sort of ask uh, another question. I mean, I think I think the issues that you raised, like, you know, farmer suicide and the families that are left behind, I mean, these are all really important topics that we should be writing about. I just wonder whether you think the onus should be placed back a little bit on the media themselves. Like, is the reason we're not covering those stories because we need more women as journalists, you know, to be, to be more sort of empathetic to that? Or is it or is that is that not the reason why those stories aren't getting as as much exposure as they should? So, you know, that's a question that I've often uh, been asked every time I uh, sort of showcase this example. Uh, as a journalist, uh, I, I was basically a business journalist. So for nearly 18 years, I covered stock markets and the CEOs in India, largely a male-dominated space. 
I started to understand only when I set up She the People that there's a concept called gendered storytelling. When you go with certain questions, you get certain answers. When you don't see those questions as being problematic or the or the need for those to be asked, you never ask them, and then you miss that story, which is exactly what has been happening as an example with the farmer suicides and with the coverage of COVID, for example. I think, barring the coverage that's been given to the female uh, political leaders around the world. I think uh, there has been uh, talk about you know stuff that we're talking here, for example, on workspaces, etc. But look at the proportion of that discussion. It's down in uh, you know embedded in some sort of a featured section. It's hard news, and therefore it's easy for me to say, even though I'm a journalist, yeah, the media should be blamed on this. But then you know we all know there are so many intricate factors. um what what goes into it and of course there is the other large factor about what we report is often near us so it takes a lot for people to go deep not into just stories but within countries that deserve uh you know to tell their stories from a very uh, deep inside uh you know as an example and since i'm just speaking i want to make one quick point and pass it back uh, to what stefania pointed out about you know the disproportionate impact on women I actually feel that there's an aspect of women uh, that we we'll forget if we don't pay attention to it today about online education. You know, as a young child uh, who's six, seven, eight, you suddenly have the throes of that single mobile phone, if at all that exists there with a screen. You know, there are screenless mobile phones still in India, and you are left uh, for your entire education for this year or so. uh for an online syllabi that you have never learned how to deal with and worse you don't have access to digital or got connectivity so by the time this girl becomes a woman she's not only going to have stunted education she's going to actually be totally lost wondering like what hit her uh, there are places in india where we you know sort of glorified stories of young girls sitting on top of roofs in a tiny public uh, light uh, during covid with a mask on trying to give an exam you know this is not what we love to celebrate i know we must tell these stories but this is where covid is impacting women at such a young age that they they don't know what's going to hit them when this entire thing plays out and has its actual economic impact which is yet to really roll out stefania i think a couple of points that i wanted to highlight looking at the region specifically specifically sort of more broadly um is obviously uh, for the countries that i cover they're vastly different so obviously singapore a small city state an extremely advanced uh nation uh, versus obviously sort of malaysia which is sort of in the middle income uh section and indonesia which is more sort of in the emerging market bucket so obviously women's realities in these different countries are very very different and the impact that the coronavirus may have is obviously very diverse but one point for example uh, that i think is worth noting for singapore for instance is the fact that unlike indonesia that has a very large and very young population singapore obviously has a very small population and one that is facing uh, an aging population question uh, the un has estimated that i think about 40% of singaporeans uh, will be aged 60 or above by 2050 it's one of the biggest challenges uh, faced by the government here so obviously the fact 
costs in addition to potential child care that needs to be taken on oftentimes by women. Uh, you also have the burden of caring for the elderly, uh, which is very, very widespread, again, in a country like Singapore, where uh, the aging issue is definitely one that is increasing. But also, in, uh, in addition to, I guess, looking at this from sort of an age and, and care uh, perspective, I guess, looking at also different social groups, I think the uh, issue of migrant workers has been definitely one that has been looked at. Uh, in Singapore, unfortunately, with the outbreak in the migrant worker dormitories. Uh, but obviously, migrant workers in Singapore and also another financial center like Hong Kong uh, includes domestic workers that oftentimes come from different parts of Southeast Asia. And I think one of the main uh, challenges that a lot of the NGOs that work with uh, these workers have faced is the fact that you know, it's very, very clear that this group, which already in, again, ordinary times is quite vulnerable, tends to be very much at the behest of their uh, employers by the sheer uh, system in which they are employed. Uh, the problem is that with coronavirus, their jobs have tended to become far tougher. Uh, oftentimes, many domestic workers do not have their own bedroom, for example. And obviously, they're, at that point, they're also being asked to stay in, which makes it very difficult to rest. And that, uh, NGOs have said, is particularly problematic now that, for example, cleaning schedules uh, have been doubled throughout lockdowns. Uh, and the problem is that some NGOs, uh, in the case of Hong Kong, for example, during our uh, reporting, said that there were even jumps in uh, contract terminations over the virus, uh, either for, say, uh, domestic workers going out on rest days, or in one case, actually only because the worker coughed. So uh, I think there is definitely a, a level of gender. There's also a level of class and uh, social status that needs to be taken into account when we look at the impact that coronavirus has on women across the region. Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Can we shift topics and look at some of your, let me call it positive experience. If you look at the last couple of years, you know, any positive surprises that you have seen, positive cases, either of companies or countries or people that you say, wow, you know, I wish this were more widespread. Any, any things that come to mind? Well, one thing that I just would like to mention is Bloomberg's New Voices project. So, you know, this is something that we started back in early 2018 when we did a bit of a stock take on, as a newsroom, how we were um, representing women. And actually, we found that only 10% of outside guests on television were women. And this is a global figure, not just Asia. And when we went into the print stories or the electronic stories that we have on our top pages, which are the equivalent of a front page, there was an even lower percentage of, of that. And that was quite a surprise to everyone. I think 10% of women voices on TV globally as our guests, I'm talking not, not about anchors here. And so we embarked on this new voices project. And now we are up at um, 21%, which is nowhere near where we'd like to be. We'd not like to obviously be at parity, but that's certainly an improvement. We've got 21% of all guests on that come on our television shows are female. And we're trying to get that to 30% by the end of this year. I 
I hazard a guess with COVID and everything that's happening, that might have changed. But and as part of this new voices campaign, there are a lot. Of, we sort of looked at the reasons about you know why women why we weren't getting more women voices on television, and there there were a few of them. I mean. Part of the fact it comes back, I think, to the responsibility as journalists, you know, or work to as journalists. And we always know if you're under deadline and there's a lot of pressure, you tend to go back to the people who you know that'll give you the quote. And nine times out of ten, they're probably men. And so it's laziness on our part. So we really need to, as journalists, try and push ourselves to diversify our sourcing base and find women because they're definitely out there and they've got valid opinions that should be heard. And the other part of the, at least the television representation that we found was that a lot of women just didn't feel comfortable about coming on television for whatever reason. And so as part of that, we rolled out media training. And that's something that is now taking place from San Francisco to Dubai to Sydney to Hong Kong. Uh, We just introduced Mumbai recently and we're looking at other cities. And that's where we basically go to companies, big companies, and ask them to nominate women executives. uh, And they come in and they do media training with us and we've found that that has been a huge success story and sometimes it's just as simple as getting them to meet the anchors or the people that they'll be talking to or showing them the TV set that they'll be on. They just want that sort of level of comfort and then they're a lot more willing to to come on and that, you know, sort of it's been it's a hard slog and we're still working on it but that has been one way of really raising up and discovering new voices amongst all the sorts of stories that we tell across Bloomberg. Thank you. What about you, Shaili? Some of the positive stories that you have seen. So India, I believe, uh, with its digital revolution, has unearthed the possibility of so many work-from-home opportunities for women that, unfortunately, our, our organized system, whether companies or governments, haven't caught up yet. Uh, and I think that's really going to be a post-COVID realization that all this while where we penalized uh, the notion that you had to have face time within organizations, you could actually have leveraged a large amount of efficiency levels from women who could be on a, on a sort of flexi time role with organizations and create those opportunities. To me, that is going to be one of the most positive economic outputs out of this uh, post-COVID scenario. And I'm seeing that myself. Uh, when we started out as an organization five years ago, We have decided to be a virtual newsroom. We still are giving opportunities to women who come from smaller towns and towns that they are, you know, sort of not really connected to bigger cities in a a very overnight sort of way. But it also improves the richness of the voices you're bringing. I think that's something that has stood for me. I have over time also seen some corporations and one of the complaints I have with corporations is that they make a tiny department as if like, you know, a tiny department needs to look into these issues. I feel it needs to be mainstreamed in organizations, right? Uh, which has been the large issue of uh, corporations not being able to leverage the female workforce because they think of them as as some sort of a corporate social responsibility effort when they what they need to do is actually bring it right to the center of their organization uh, objectives. To say we will reskill, we will skill, we will bring women and the workforce from, uh, you know, those who are working at home. I've seen that travel agencies and uh, banking services to an extent have done a good job of this um, because we need a large number of people to sell mutual funds or sell travel services, at least in the pre-COVID side of things. They were able to leverage women to be able to sell these uh, on phones, like running an outsourcing center. 
but i don't think that's been widespread enough to make an impact and as statistics show india has a very rapidly dwindling female workforce uh, which has already dropped 10 percentage points in the last decade when the trend should be exactly opposite given how many technological facilities we have scaled up in the last uh, few years so we went from 35% of female organized workforce to nearly 24.9% till 2018 i think so these are really poor numbers you know for a country like ours uh, and especially in the post covid world if that, this could be turned into literally championing the post covid life i think there's a lot of scope uh, for organizations to transform how they work So you mentioned uh, corporations let's zoom in on 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 what corporations are doing what corporations should do Stefania do you want to you want to start that Yeah I wanted to uh, pick up if I may uh, on a point that Shaili made about uh, the the digitization which is such a buzzword and big topic in in Southeast Asia uh mainly because obviously we have uh for instance e-commerce platforms that are growing extremely quickly here but also apps like Gojek and Grab that are expanding very very rapidly across uh different kinds of services and i think there's a lot of optimism about uh that sort of the democratization of the uh access to to work in a lot of these uh, countries in southeast asia and i think it is true to some extent because obviously women that might have had a tougher time in terms of entering the labor market in more traditional ways Uh, they may be able to do so via a mobile phone uh but i think there is also research that points to some um trends that uh, are are worth looking at that are not necess- don't necessarily pick picture or uh, paint a perfect uh, picture about the gender parity also of digitization in southeast asia so the fact that out of uh, say the smes uh, in southeast asia that uh, take advantage of the dig- these digital platforms uh, the women owned uh, businesses tend to be sort of the smallest of the SMEs or they tend to be mostly the ones that are in the informal sector so uh, or perhaps uh, also access in terms of uh, information technology tends to be worse for women than for men so even though the potential is enormous when it comes to digital digital platforms in uh, southeast asia i think there's still quite uh, a bit of uh, of work to be uh, done when it comes to uh, corporations i mean it's uh, it's a bit of a pandora's box it's a massive topic uh, but i think a topic or a point that was picked up by others as well earlier on is the issue of having representation across the different segments of the firm i think for example when we talked about media it's true there are more obviously women in the industry but i think what really ultimately makes change as well is making sure that you have female representation also in more senior positions in uh, the companies uh, that you're looking at uh, and the challenge still is that women may uh, progress up until a specific level and then sort of they uh, hit a bit of a ceiling whether it's for their own personal choice because they decide to exit the uh, labor uh, force for personal re- reasons maybe for family reasons but for whichever reasons we still i think need to overcome that hurdle and make sure that the sort of more equal gender representation is really mapped out uh, across the uh, different levels of management in uh, companies 
companies. And I think, for example, if I think of the Financial Times, when uh, Rula Khadaf, who is the editor-in-chief of the Financial Times, stepped in and became the first ever woman to head the paper, I mean, that was an incredibly important moment, I think, for obviously for us as a paper, but for uh, the industry in general. And I think those kinds of events really do mark change that I think is still in uh, the process of occurring. So let me pick up on that. What do companies do? What should they do to get more women into the senior management roles? I think that's a tough question. And I think, um, you know, it also comes down to transparency and holding companies accountable. And I think globally, investors have a role to play in that as well, right? I mean, you know, they're basically funding these companies. One thing that Bloomberg does is that we have a gender equality index. And that's something that, again, was started in 2018. Um, We had 230 companies in it in 2019. And then for this year, we've got 325 companies across 50 different industries and 42 different countries. Um, And this is, uh, it's not meant to be a financial metric, but it is um, somewhere where someone can look at this index and know that the companies in it have been rated on things like female uh, leadership and the talent pipeline, a pro-women brand, sexual harassment policies, equal pay, gender pay parity, things like that. And it's quite rigorous and at least it is a way for investors to at least get a handle on what companies are doing. Because I think if you rely on companies to disclose that information themselves, or if you as an investor are trying to do that individually, it's very hard. It's very hard to to tell. So I think that's a good point about, you know, how uh, we actually today lack enough independent ways of measuring uh, what level of work has been done when it comes to gender inclusion as a whole barring the odd award or or this index that we just spoke about, that Katrina spoke about. But, you know, one of the things I feel um, that has to change, and this will only change, I feel, if we create enough noise, enough conversation on this around the world, uh, is that, you know, the pipeline is very sort of fixed and highly patriarchal. I mean, I was listening to what, uh, you know, um, Stefania said about small businesses. A large amount of uh, small businesses uh, don't get funded because somehow the male investor, which is the majority investor, doesn't see scale. You know, his glasses are so tinted that he's looking for everything that has some amount of scale, which will never change because then you'll always have people going for the for the fastest courses and not sort of getting the herd stronger. So I think that's one of the big problems is that we don't recognize that this entire pipeline is very patriarchal and it needs to be fixed. Second, I think when women do make it to the top, we're very happy that they do. And then we forget about them becoming the change agents for those who they can pull up. Uh, And somehow I've noticed this, that top female CEOs have practically zero mentorship or advice on how they can lift them all, right, in whichever way, based on whichever other metrics they want to take. So I think the large issue here is that if we don't start recognizing some of these, we will always keep waiting for somebody in an organization to wake up. And as I think the experience might be of everybody here, the the so-called diversity, the HR, you know, sometimes I just think, why do we need an HR department or diversity department to manage inclusion? Why isn't it the job of the CEO? And why isn't the CEO talking about these issues? They always send like some member who's deputed to do this, right? 
until a, until an audience sort of sees that confidence on on the leader who is seen doing the right things and is doing the right things we are not going to find this change and this these indices all of these and whatever efforts we all can make uh, will fall short of the real prize which is to bring that inclusion in place and you know what makes it harder is something that stefan mentioned earlier is, is the level of you know caste class all of that slipping in and now of course sexuality and gender choices uh, slipping into this which which makes it so significantly higher a complex issue than just saying gender equality as a whole you know so i think organizations need to step up and start seeing where is the blockage in the pipeline on a thorough basis just like we do for corruption right we we want to see where is the leakage for money because it's so important for existence the minute we start seeing the blockages for women as a whole from top to bottom i think that's the only way for any organization to do it and until organizations think of this as an activity of self regulation right i mean people in uh, companies have ways of behaving it's not necessarily written down every time there is a basic code of conduct until people start looking at that activity as a self corrective effort i think it's hard to say that any exterior effort after a point will work and i also think i wanted to pick up on the point of the incentive structure that leads companies and multinational corporations and i mean obviously these are humongous corporations that essentially would need to really change up uh, an entire system which obviously takes uh, a lot of willingness to do so uh, and a lot of time and a lot of structural change so going back also to the point of the investors i i think it's also the investors themselves need to have a specific incentive structure that makes them put pressure on the companies to further change and i think that is still a, a bit potentially of an issue because for example when we talk about you know investors being concerned with you know esg issues i think there might still be the mindset of having to chase or sort of this the, the financial system is definitely still based in large part on having to chase short term returns more than longer term returns i think it is changing but very very slowly and unless that changes i think we might still see you know very very large investors potentially you know tick a small box saying you know this little corner of our uh, assets are meeting these uh, uh, esg requirements but then sort of if you turn around and then use the rest of the assets in in ways that are definitely not good for esg then what what does that even mean and unless that incentive system is changed uh, i think it will be hard to really see sort of systemic uh, evolution in this front and just just speaking up on that that is where i do worry that the pandemic may set things back because it felt to me that before covid ESG was getting a lot more airtime yeah you know, and green issues and everything like that and investors were out talking about it and it just seemed like you know a lot more column inches and airtime were definitely devoted to those issues and you know gender um equality among that and then of course you know the global pandemic hit and i feel like now companies are probably just um going back to that quarterly quarterly existence i mean there's hardly a ceo out there at the moment who wants to give guidance because they don't even know what the third quarter is going to end up looking like let alone the fourth quarter or let alone 2021 it's kind of this let's just get through this next week this next month and that's where i 
that's where I wonder from an investor point of view, has it been sort of taken off their radar, things like ESG, things like gender, as they just wonder, is my investment going to be safe? Yeah, I'm sure the priorities sort of list has completely been shaken up, right? In the same way that, as we mentioned earlier, the healthcare system is now completely being shifted on dealing with the pandemic. Same thing for companies, sort of how do we stay afloat? How do we still either try to continue paying dividends or go back to paying dividends? So obviously, if that is the the priority and the urgency, then obviously other issues like this, I completely agree, might just fall down the list. Yeah, in a post-COVID world, I guess there, there's going to be merit for a survey that uh, looks at companies led by women uh, and how they survived this crisis. Because at least right now, if I look at the startup community in India, I know this is an unprecedented sort of pandemic, but I can see a large number of female-led businesses making it through. And I believe that one of the reasons they might make it through is because they also had an eye on cash flow, something apparently is uh, has got uh, you know data to suggest that many men try to be hugely leveraged about their startups and as a result of that they don't sit on cash um, or at least have enough to survive because that's not a priority what's a priority is to raise the next big round so again i'm not being judgmental here but i'm just saying what i hear from the entrepreneurship community it would be an interesting thing to watch when it gets done I think it also comes back to you you've seen people that you know, countries that have been led by female leaders, um, you know, typically managing the pandemic very well. Now, while that is, I'm not qualified to sort of say, but I think it's really important to be able to see females at the top. I mean, Stefania, when you said about the head of the financial review being a woman, I think it's there is nothing more encouraging for a young intern or a young reporter coming in and seeing someone like them making the decisions, making the choices of what news we're going to cover that day, what we're going to prioritise. That's really powerful. That can't be underestimated. Thank you, ladies. This has been a, a fascinating conversation. I want to start rounding us out. And could I ask each one of you, if we have many senior executives listening to this podcast, what is the one or two piece of advice you would have for each of those senior executives? And in particular, for the men listening to this podcast, let's go around the table. Who wants to go first? Stefania? Sure. I think when, you know, the pandemic, we will finally get out of this, uh, of this pandemic. I think it will be crucial for people to look back and reflect not only on obviously the impact of the coronavirus, which is paramount, but also to really step back and take this moment to step back and really look at, with a critical eye, at the systems in place, whether it be in government, whether it be in business, um, that remain skewed towards a male uh, bias and that actually, those, that is the reason why some of the, for instance, policy responses to coronavirus uh, have actually fallen short when it comes to supporting women. Um, I think it should be a moment to learn from that, to avoid doing that once again uh, when the next crisis hits. And I think what I might um, suggest to everyone is to uh, read, for instance, a book that I find fascinating by uh, Caroline Criado-Perez that's called Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. And I think it really hits the nail on the head when uh, the author points to a gender data gap that essentially is causing a gap in our own 
knowledge and understanding of the of the world and the systems that we live in that perpetuates a systemic uh, discrimination against women. It's a lovely read, and I think it's a, a very informed book that everyone should uh, would probably find useful. Thank you, Stefania. Katrina? Well, I would say, um, you know, I think COVID-19 has had um, a lot of terrible things um, as a result. But what, what one thing this pandemic has made everyone do is given people time to pause and to reflect about what is really important in their lives. Interestingly, we saw a number of uh, family offices in, in Asia actually uh, sort of think about more succession planning because COVID-19 had reminded us, us, us all of our own mortality. So I suppose I would, uh, to senior executives, male or female, to maybe uh, use this period of pause as an opportunity to think perhaps what can be done differently when we all do start up our busy, crazy lives again and perhaps make some change that you've been thinking about in the back of your head but haven't had the courage to implement. Thank you. Shaili. I think for me, I'll have a slightly broader appeal because this COVID, COVID impact has kind of reminded us how everybody has to be home and know the worth of how everyone has to work and sometimes work way too much trying to straddle housework as well as your office work. And I'm glad in many ways that men around the world had that opportunity, those who hadn't been doing this, to see what goes in to manage children, still be a person who's career-oriented and ambitious and want it all. Okay, so my advice to men at the top would be, please have these conversations among men. I think when you all meet each other, you know, it's okay to show off your bonuses, but it's equally important to have this conversation about how you're dealing with women in your homes at your workspaces. Because I feel men can become one of the biggest champions and women will actually ease off that burden of converting everybody. If some men could just stand up and say, let me help you out. If they go around the room, not only would some men take them more seriously because they're just used to hearing their buddies at the top. And it will also make it far more effective because then they'll see that their peer is a changed person and is driving change. I really feel that as women, we could truly benefit from the agency if men were on our side as well, some men who can help sort of add to this change that we are seeking. So especially for the men at the top, I would urge them to do that. Thank you. Listen, I would just like to thank all three of you. This has been a wonderful conversation. We have gone to many different places, many different topics. Very rich conversation, a passionate conversation. I would just like to say that you know what we're talking about here is the 30 trillion dollar question when it comes to economic development by 2030 globally. We're talking about something that provides more talent. We're talking about something that provides more fairness. We're talking about something that needs to get back on the agenda for all leaders across the region in a more significant way now that we're coming into the next phase of COVID. So the big encouragement for me is at least let's make sure this is back on the agenda in a more forceful way. 
Let me just end by saying a huge thank you to Stefania, to Shiley, to Katrina. You guys have been wonderful. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey and Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.